Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. We've got a great show today. But first, I want to remind you about the Cancer Mavericks, our groundbreaking documentary series about the history of cancer survivorship over the last five decades. It's extraordinary. We're very proud of it. Please check it out wherever you listen to your podcast, The Cancer Mavericks. Joining me today is an old friend of mine from the Livestrong days and from the early young adult cancer universe and when survivorship was just kind of starting to get its comeuppance. Her name is Susan Bratton. She's an MBA. She worked in finance. One of her best friends got cancer for no reason. Glioblastoma, stage four multiformity, the big one. He died. She watched him suffer and decided to do something about it. She started a nonprofit called Meals to Heal, which was one of the first like food delivery services like Uber Eats today, but way before its time that delivered handcrafted meals to cancer patients who couldn't cook for themselves, who were desperately sick and needed to have decent food to have an improved quality of life. Fast forward about 15 years and she's now the CEO of Savor Health, a personalized nutrition technology platform that provides personalized and clinically appropriate nutritional recommendations for people with cancer or other rare diseases. Who knew that nutrition and disease go together? And that should be a thing, but it's not. And we're talking about that and a whole lot more. So enjoy the show. Susan Bratton, MBA. I didn't realize you had an MBA. Not surprising when I stalked you on LinkedIn, which I really didn't need to do because I've known you like, what, 12 years now? Mm, yeah, about 12. Welcome to Out of Patience. Very excited to be here. And to see you in person. It's fantastic. In real life. What's this? I know. I think this is this is the post-COVID world. Same room? Almost. No, we're in the same room right now. Oh, we are in the same room, but not the last time I saw you. Got it. No, the last I'm time slow. was Zoomish. Yes. <laughs> I'm so sick of Zoom. Me too. So random question. Who decided once the pandemic hit that everything had to be a Zoom call instead of what it used to be, which was just regular conference calls. I think that it was the man trying to make sure that his or her team was actually working and they wanted to see them and uh, they could tell whether or not they were at the beach. So you mean the actual man, not the proverbial the man? No, I mean the, the, the man man. Men suck. I know, it's true. Totally suck. <laughs> so I met you 
just for the listeners to know for context, in my stupid cancer days, when this random idea that you are what you eat actually matters when you get cancer too. Because <laughs> I remember growing up and the you are what you eat was the PSAs. And I guess if I was what I ate, I'd be a Pop-Tart. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally a Pop-Tart. What but were you? What, what did you eat growing up? Uh, wow. What did I eat? Like, what, like Fruity Pebbles? Like what was your advice? Um, yeah. I liked, uh, I liked Ding Dongs. Ding Dongs. Yeah. And Double Stuff Oreo for sure. Were there Double Stuff Oreos? Yeah. I'm dating myself too. I don't remember when they um, came out. Well, I'm pretending like I'm younger than I am. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, just for shits and giggles, Oreo not a sponsor, but I'm a golden vanilla Oreo guy. I'm I'm old school. I like the regular ones. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. But to disagree. double stuff. But double yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Did you know? Speaking of food and nutrition, did you know that uh, Oreos are vegan? You know what? It's like when they come out with the gluten-free Rice Krispies. Like, just because it's gluten-free or vegan doesn't mean it's good for you. Exactly. There are fat vegans, too. Exactly. And that is what I say. You can be very unhealthy as a vegan. And a case in point is Oreos are vegan. Yep. Quality. Yep. And butter. Butter is vegan. No, I'm kidding. It's not vegan. (laughs) Butter is the opposite of vegan. But you got to love butter. That's what they teach you in cooking school. Butter and salt. Well, I learned very early on that fat doesn't make you fat. Calories make you fat. Is that that still true? That is still true. See? It's like, wow, low fat still makes you fat. (laughs) Anyway, for context sake, so I was diagnosed 25 years ago, and I want to talk about your friend Eric that you've been vocal about in your your bio and your story. And I lost 160 pounds in three months because I couldn't eat. I couldn't swallow food. I was nauseous all day, I wasn't hungry, and I just wasted away without nary a care for my nutritional well-being. And true story, I don't remember if I said this out loud in a long time, fun fact of Matt's crazy saga, I was told to eat a pint or three of vanilla haagen every day. Sounds very familiar. That was the prescription for my nutrition, was to fill up with lactose, fat, and, and sugar. sugar. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, right, the, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because, because weight loss is so correlated with mortality. And so, you know, you want to prevent the weight loss, but unfortunately, not all calories are created equal. And that was, I mean, when you say that, haagen vanilla, that is exactly what my friend Eric was told. Right. So let's go to your friend, Eric. Again, if you go to Susan's LinkedIn, which we'll put in the episode description, you'll see her incredible story and how she got from then to now. But clearly, Eric was a galvanizing catalyst in your life. Absolutely. He was one of my one of my closest friends. Hilarious. One of the funniest people I've ever met. Uh, Just kind of energetic, effusive. um, So funny. Just just a wonderful human being. So he was just out of nowhere diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. I, he called me one night. I was... Young guy, too. Yeah, I was 30, 36. He called me one night, and it was about 7.30. I was standing with some friends waiting to go into a restaurant, and he said, I have cancer. I, I, have, I have a brain tumor. And I remember feeling like I was punched in the stomach, and I was far away. I was, I was, I was not in New York. 
he had kind of a droopy eye and he came home one night and his girlfriend said, have you been out drinking? And, and he said, no. And she said, well, you're, you just, you're slurring your words and you kind of look funny. Um, kind of like Bell's palsy, you might think. Um, so long story short, he went to the, he went to the emergency room. They did some tests. They did some more tests. They admitted him. And a day and a half later, he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma. Yeah. And that's, those are shocking words. Glioblastoma multiforme stage four. Yeah. It's like, there's no stage one. There's no stage two. It's only stage four. Right. It's the worst of the worst. 33, 36? 36. Yeah, there's no reason for that. No. But I was reading again, uh, and just reading your recount of his story reminded me vividly of mine and other people I've met over time who had the same experience. You're just withering away without, again, nary a concern for your well-being. And again, this was, at least for me, it was the 90s when they just didn't care about you in general. So it's hard to find fault when the entire system didn't care about you as a person. But we're now at a time, and this happened during a time, and it inspired you to even leave your career. Yes. To get into like, this shouldn't happen to people. I'm here to help it not happen to people. Right. It was it was such a life-changing experience, just, just being jolted that way and seeing someone who who's, was so vibrant over a five-month period um, just waste away to nothing and... and you know, and pass away um, and get no no support on food and nutrition other than Haagen-Dazs, the Haagen-Dazs diet. And it just, it it was one of those things where I said, this, this can't be, but I was a healthcare person. I worked in healthcare finance. So I started looking at research and saying, well, maybe all of this crazy stuff that I believe in, and I make the joke about Oreos, but um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty clean eater. My, my nieces, um, call me either kale or quinoa because <laughs> they think it's really funny. But, um, you know, I thought this just can't be, this can't be. And lo and behold, it can't be. In fact, nutrition does matter. Food does matter. Um, but calories are not created equal. And when you're diagnosed with cancer, um, you have a host of, of side effects, and there are things you can do from a nutritional perspective to help manage the symptoms, one of which is weight loss, but there are many others. And so um, I decided that if there's evidence and every cancer patient has side effects, but nine out of 10 have nutritional side effects before they even start treatment, if that's the case, then I'm going to start a company to help people like my friend Eric use nutrition as a lever um, to help reduce their symptom burden and um, and to exercise control, right? When you're, I mean, you know this, Matt, when you're diagnosed with cancer, your world is spinning out of control. You want to put your foot down, but you can't. And all you do is do what people tell you to do. Go to the lab, go get an infusion, go get a scan. One of the few things you can do and you can control is what you put in your mouth. And so um, kind of fast forward to today and patient centricity, you know, nutrition is, is also a way to have agency in your treatment journey to kind of take the bull by the horns and do something. I think that's really important, um, beyond just the calories and the nutrients. It's, right. it's a psychological benefit as well. But when, when I met you, you were running an organization that you also founded. We'll get to what you're working on today. Meals to Heal. Yes. Fairly innovative for its time, right? Yes. How did that come to you? 
Well, so I was looking at my friend Eric and saying, my gosh, he lives in New York City and yet he can't get, you know, he can't cook. He's too weak. He can't get meals that are appropriate for him, even delivered to his home. And so I said, well, I'm going to start a company that's really, it was the first medically tailored meal delivery business in the U.S. for cancer patients. And so the idea was, let's bring the right nutrition to the patient. Let's look at their calories. Let's look at the side effects. Let's look if they have other medical conditions, hypertension, diabetes, what other drugs are they on? And most importantly, what do they like to eat, right? And so let's let's customize according to what they need kind of clinically, calorically, but also bring them something they want to eat because you also, you hit up on something, you don't have an appetite. So if there's something that, that can be brought to you that you want to eat, well, that, that helps with the weight loss. You're, you're more inclined to eat it. I have a funny story to tell. In 2011, we had our patient conference. Remember the OMG? Yes, I do. Cancer summits. Mm-hmm. And we had a woman talk. Her name is Chris Carr. Yeah. She had cancer. She, inoperable, very horrible tragic story. She is still here, thankfully. She made a couple of choices because the only thing she had control over was what she could eat. She couldn't have surgery, couldn't have radiation. It's in her body and she's stuck with it. So the only thing she could take control over was what she put in her pie hole. And she confessed to eating like shit, like we all do in our 20s. But I, the funny story is that <laughs> at the conference... She's talking to like, you know, 500 young adult cancer patients. Some of them are really sick. Some of them are doing it right. And she's talking about like eating kale and doing all these. She was ahead of her time in the kale spectrum. Mm-hmm. She was a, a kale early adopter in the cancer nutrition conversation. And we had one social worker raise her hand and say, look, if my patient is vomiting all the time and in pain and she wants haagen fuck kale. Right. So right. there's got to be some kind of, I don't know, latitude on do you really want to taste kale when you're nauseous? You right? may not. Right. 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 But to your what you talked about, how do you even start tailoring a nutritional plan? A to just a regular Joe or Jane. Mm-hmm. But if you have a cancer, is it dependent on the type, the chemotherapy, your age, your race? What does that algorithm look like? And then right. we can move forward towards what you're doing at Saver. So when I went into this, I thought, oh, there must be, be uh, you know, the breast cancer diet, the prostate cancer diet. But what I didn't tell you, I don't even know if you know this. I quit my job um, to start Meals to Heal at the time. And my dad was told he had four months to live, multiple myeloma. So I went home to be with him. And I learned a really important, and by the way, he's going to turn 90. He's still with us. Good for him. It's amazing. Love you, dad. Yeah. Um, but what I learned was something really, really important that factors into what we're talking about. And that is I'm the kale and quinoa. He's a meat eater. And so this is not a point in time where you tell people they have to eat kale and quinoa. This is a point where we have to meet people where they are and help them eat what they want to eat, but do it in a way that gives them the right calories, that minimizes kind of some of the bad things. Um, and Could and you imagine it, telling a 90-year-old guy to stop eating meat? Yeah, exactly. Well, I did, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not imagining it, but at the end of the day, like, you're here at 90. That's great. Right. Don't change. Right, exactly. 
So I took away with it from that, that you need to meet people where they are and help them at this time in their life to bring food, nutrition, meals that are what they want to eat. And now we then customize around the edges to the algorithm. So the first thing we look at is we look at what the side effects are. So every patient is going to have a different side effect profile. So if you think about the labels, the, the drug labels, it might say 70% of people have mouth sores and 20% of people... Diarrhea, um, diarrhea, constipation, stress, anxiety, your head falls off, your feet are tingling, yeah, all the things. Bingo. And so you have to customize for what they're experiencing at that point in time. And by the way, these side effects change over time. So that's part of the algorithms as well as making sure that we're up to date on what are the side effects now. Maybe they went on a different drug. Um, maybe they, they moved from surgery to radiation. But we need to look at what's the side effect profile. We need to look at their comorbidities. Perhaps they're hypertensive. So kind How many of, variables in total must there be? Thousands, right? Um, it, it, from a just kind of a big picture perspective, categorically, 15. Okay. Um, I mean, can you go down to the, the minutia? Yes, but, but so like age side effects, medications. Yeah. So it's side effects, it's medications, it's other medical conditions, it's height, weight. So you get a BMI, but it's also weight history. You also need to look at you know, certain, certain chemotherapies uh, have certain foods that are contraindicated. So you need to look at things like that, food-drug interaction. And then, importantly, what is it they want to eat? So we're going to discuss what people want to eat after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back. 
What do people want to eat? If they're nauseous and feeling like crap all day and maybe stuck in an infusion chair for six hours, I mean, this is if they're on oral parity, that's great. But tell us, what, what have you observed in starting up this company? You basically weaponized yourself and your expertise into Saber Health. Mm-hmm. So this algorithm that is capturing all these data points, where is it determining what is best for that patient? Is there a precedent of other patients who responded well to similar recommendations? Or is this based on your experiences working in the sector? It's based on the evidence. So every so right now we have 52,000 nutrition interventions. Every single one is, is fully referenced and cited in the literature. But behind the scenes, we're looking at the variables that I mentioned and the matching algorithms are taking that patient use cases defined by those 10 to 15 variables, um, looking at kind of clinical variables, but also the contextual variables. What do they want to eat? Um, do they have certain cultural preferences, ethnic preferences that they want to eat today versus tomorrow? And then last but not least, intent. What do they want a recipe or do they want a tip or do they want, what are the foods that I can eat for mouth sores? So it's, it's all of the above. Then it's texted to them, but they tell us what they're experiencing. And then we recommend, um, based on their intent and based on their side effects, their other, uh, medical conditions, medications, et cetera. I mean, you were like Uber Eats before Uber Eats. We were. Right. But these days you can be shipped fresh food that you can cook or cooked food you can nuke. Do you track that as well? We're not tracking that right now, but next version of the product, we will. So if you think about that last mile and think about the needs of patients, we started at the upper end, the sickest of the sick. And I'm gonna, I am gonna—I want to come back to, there's an interesting analogy there. Um, the sickest of the sick, they need heat and eat, right? They can't cook, they can't grocery shop. But imagine you're my dad, post bone marrow transplant. You can cook but you can't really go to the grocery store because you're you're at risk of infection, right? You, you're 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 just out of that bone marrow transplant, so not a good idea to go to the grocery store. Well, that could be either either meal kits or it could be even a res- recipe with the groceries delivered. And then down at the lower end of the need continuum, as I call it, is a recipe. Uh, you could uh, get a shopping list, all of the above. And people move up and down that need continuum from day to day. The other thing that I think is important here that we haven't hit upon is what I call the casserole patrol, the friends and family members. Think about it. You want to help your loved one. Casserole patrol. I trademarked it. Is that our band now? (laughs) It is. That's our band. It is. Okay, I'm tambourine. What are you? Uh, I'm a bass. All right, done. Okay. Casserole patrol, continue. All right. Um, so it's also, it's also to support them because I think about, I grew up in Colorado and the green bean and onion soup casserole is what people bring. And I just see that every time someone's sick, they bring that in. Okay. You're nauseous. Um, that is not a good idea. So we can help right, them. Right. Cause it looks like what you're going to put in the toilet before you eat it. Exactly. The bad exactly. ones, the good ones are very yummy. Yes. But the bad exactly. ones can really not be a. Yeah. A welcome site. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really to to help them as well. And and what was interesting, so I, I said I would get back to this. So we were at the upper point in the need continuum, and we were looking at our statistics and we were seeing that the patients were dropping off at five weeks. And I thought, you know, based on my experiences, that makes no sense. Why are they dropping off? So 
we, uh, we peeled back the onion and we looked and it wasn't cost and it wasn't quality. It was psychology and it was that need to be in control. And what 98% of the patients told us was meals and cooking, um, is a form of independence and control Mm. and back to that, you know, I want agency. And that's why I said, you know, right business, wrong model. It's kind of, wow, I could have had a V8 moment. We're doing, um, we're supporting those, the sickest of the sick, but what they really want is to be able to get strong enough so that they can get back in the kitchen. They can go grocery shopping. They can do something. Right. Not feel pitied for the wrong sake of intent. Right. Right. Well, and also, you know, a cancer, a cancer diagnosis and nutritional and other side effects can be very isolating. Right. So it's not just about the control. It's also about the isolation. If there's something you can do to be able to go out and eat with your friends and family or go to someone's house, I mean, that also matters a lot. I mean, food is you know, food is not just calories and nutrients. Food is culture. Food is love. And at a time in, in one's life where those things are also super important and maybe even more important at that point in your life because it's so uncertain. So channeling the startup culture that we're currently living in as of this taping, I did want to read a quote from an article written uh, about you. And <laughs> this is a tongue in cheek because we know the answer. But when Susan Bratton started approaching pharma companies with the idea, how dare you, with the idea that nutrition and customized recipes should play a part in disease treatment, and this is very polite, she did not immediately receive a warm welcome. (laughs) I want to learn more about how the how dare you try to have an idea to bring to pharma about patient-centeredness in food when they're always talking about patient-centeredness and there's no food. Well, and there's no patient-centeredness either. I mean, you know, I think, I th- and that's that's kind of a past tense. I think we're in a different world now post-COVID, but... Yeah, that was a few years ago to, for context. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, what, you know, if you think about the kind of the DNA, no pun intended, of a pharmaceutical company, they look at a molecule, they figure out what the mechanism of action is, they they see how it's going to impact certain pathways, slow the tumor growth, et cetera. It's science, science, science. And yet nutrition is considered a non-science, even though there's a lot of science and there, and it's growing. So I think part of the kind of knee-jerk reaction from the medical community, and not just pharma, is that there are a lot of quacks in the nutrition world that promise false cures. They tell people to go to Mexico and get coffee enemas and drink green juices and they'll be cured. Hey, I run a coffee enema startup. Uh, that is fantastic. I really don't. God bless you. <laughs> it's not working very well. I'm not surprised. <laughs> but, you know, I think the, the orientation is this isn't medical. And furthermore, how are we going to use it? right? How are we going to use it? And so there were two things we had to do. The first was we had to show them um, how nutrition can help with the symptoms of their drugs. And if you show them their label and they you show them nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, constipation, and kind of do the, the walk of here's how we can manage it, and this will improve adherence and compliance, it will extend survival. It will lower symptom burden. And keep you making money. Uh, translation, maximizing lifetime value of a patient on XYZ drug. Boom. Boom. 
so you know, it's it's an it's an economic thing. That was the initial initial play. And look, these are publicly traded companies, so they have to think about about that. So that was the initial foray in, and we went in and we continued to go in with a medical model. And so my kind of big vision is, I believe, evidence-based nutrition should be a reimbursed standard of care incorporated into the treatment guidelines for all diseases, starting with cancer and the NCCN guidelines. How do you get there? Hang you on, take- jargon alert. Yes. NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And so how do you do that? Well, you take a very methodical, disciplined, scientific approach. And that's how we built our algorithms. That's how we think about data. And so I think that's sort of what I would call responsible scientific process um, is really important. I think the, the referencing and citations, really important. We can take it through legal, medical, and regulatory. Um, that de-risks it for them. I think... Today, post-COVID, what we're seeing is not just the economic argument, but we're also realizing that nutrition really does matter. And I think there's just an acknowledgement that it does matter, and it's a social determinant, but it's more than just a social determinant. It impacts every patient. Well, to put in a plug for the Cancer Mavericks, the documentary that we just released about the history of cancer survivorship... Thinking about how they were even able to get the word survivorship into the lexicon to be considered a billable thing because quality of life became tantamount to quality of care, thus saving pharma companies money. The idea of monetizing survivorship, showing that quality of life is an economic measure, I feel like nutrition was kind of last on the chain. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't like it, but we're we're doing our we're doing our our best to to change that, right? You know, and I just think the world um, the world's recognizing that it does matter. Um, it's still hard, you know, when you're selling into scientific organizations that um, that still perceive the nutrition industry as quack science. And there's a there's a, there are a lot of quacks out there. I mean, I, that's the reality. So right. we how just, do you so how do you self police? How do you democratize and yet make sure you de-quackerify. I just made a word up. Um, well, we only hire oncology credentialed registered dietitians, nurses, medonks, radonks, social workers. We work with only credentialed professionals. We stick to the literature. We cite the literature. And we, um, when we go through a process um, and look at the literature, it's also got to meet the standard that you would see in pharma, statistically significant and, and you know, things like that published in high quality peer reviewed journals. Um, and we also set aside and look at interesting studies that may not go into our database initially. So there's a really interesting nutrition study happening in Australia. Now it's the second version of the study or the second um, arm of it. It started with five patients, looked interesting, and now they're doing a much bigger study. That study is an interesting one, but it doesn't go in our database. So that's how we do it. We just, we really, really stick to the science and the scientific procedure and process. So going back to like, let's say in the startup vein, the go-to-market strategy, Mm -hmm. I always want to ask the question of folks on my show, who is responsible to let the patient know a support service exists that they otherwise would never normally be made aware of by their doctor or their institution? Great question. So I think it should be the physician 
I think the physicians are incredibly overwhelmed. So we have to work with them and, um, and make it easy for them. But at the end of the day, we're work, physicians have the highest degree of influence over patients. We trust our physicians. So that's where it should come from. It shouldn't come from your, ins- from your insurance company. It shouldn't come from the pharma company, I don't think, long term, because I think people are skeptical of corporations. And so we trust our physicians and that's where it should be. But they have a lot on their plate. So another kind of component here, I think, is we need to work with the physicians on this as well. And we've been really pleased to see that the physicians who've tested it and demoed it are actually really happy um, with what they're seeing because they see that we know what we know. We stay inside of our sandbox. And if, if there's a clinical condition that falls outside of the purview of an oncology dietitian, we say, speak with your medical team. That also makes them feel comfortable. So it also, it de-risks it for the pharma companies, for the payers, but also for the physicians. So I think that's a really important component of the whole go-to-market so let's close out the show with a bit of a pitch. Your chatbot is called Ina, Saver Health. What is the benefit to patients and what are some of the incredibly amazing early success stories you can share? Sure. So what Ina does, it's, a, it's an expert system, but that doesn't really matter to the patient. What Ina does is brings a dietitian to the patient or to the caregiver. They get 24-7 access to the same high-quality, evidence-based, personalized nutritional intervention and guidance that they would get from a dietitian. But unfortunately, there aren't very many dietitians in the community setting or in the NCI-designated cancer center. So they get a dietitian in their pocket. And that's going to improve their ability to adhere to their treatment. It's going to reduce their symptom burden. It's going to empower them with information and resources that give them back control. And it's going to help them feel better. And ultimately, um, we believe that nutrition can extend survival. It's not 100%. And we well, know I believe that. it too. I, I don't think anyone is going to say, no, more ding-dongs for the cancer patients. Right. <laughs> Pop-Tarts, um, Pop-Tarts, or Pop-Tarts for the cancer patients. Right, exactly. Double stuff Oreos. Yes. Um, so one of the things that that has been so great for me to watch is we look at a lot of the uh, comments that come through when people are talking to Ina. So we, we intake... Uh, you know, what I call structured data. So very discrete uh, pieces of information, patient reported, which is really valuable to the pharma. But what I find most interesting are the little nuggets that, that the patients say. And there's one that just, every time I just smile, there's an 89-year-old woman who's on Ina. Now think about that. She's texting. This is a text. She's texting and she sends Ina a message almost every day when Ina sends her an outreach saying, here's a tip. She says, oh, Ina, I just look forward to your text every single day, which, it, which makes me so happy. I feel better and you're reaching out to me. It's a touch point that is very human, even though it's a it's an expert system that makes me really happy because at the end of the day you know we're not only helping them nutritionally hopefully we're we're helping them feel better and more positive i love the dietitian in your pocket that should totally be your tagline if it isn't already susan bratton is the founder and ceo at saver health i encourage all of my listeners to check it out today at saverhealth.com 
Thanks for coming on the show. So great. Great to talk to you and great to see you again in person. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.